is it is there is there room for improvement you think like how are you gonna go back and lower this <laughs> It was so hard and so because I suffered so much. It was, it was, it was nothing. Like people, oh, it's so cool. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Never walked alone at night like a man against the world. No one takes your. He warned me. He's like, this is not like what you're about to do is not going to be fun. When your faith is shaken, you start to break, and your heart says it's going to be really miserable, and you're going to go to some dark places. I give you a man against the world. But the truth was, is that really, really what it was. I mean, it was extreme suffering. the end is near, and the hero going through your mind the moment you came out that last trailhead like what what are the what's the flood of feeling and emotions is what I'm feeling after that. Excellent work, interim producer Ajay there on the montage for the Cedar Skier podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are listening to us here live on Shovel Lake Public Radio. This is the Cedar Skier podcast. 
the fastest growing and most popular Nordic ski and endurance sports specific podcast in all of Lake County. And we have a complete stranglehold over that market, largely because of the excitement we bring, but also in large part due to the fascinating stories that we have on our show. And we have probably one of the best ones we have ever had today for you. Um, The first interview that anyone has done with Dan Hobbs, who recently set the record for the fastest self-supported completion of all 58 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. So Dan is a Minnesotan. He lives in Bloomington, and he also skied the Berkey, so we brought in the Nordic ski element there. Uh, And his story is just really more about, or more than just about hiking, I I will say that. And uh, yeah, we've got coming up here on the show. We sat down with him. We talked with him about 80, 90 minutes. So you're going to hear all about the triumphs and travails of traversing across the state by yourself you hear a little bit about his um his his growing up too and that's a huge part of his story his faith journey as well um and some fun things too we talked we asked him about his rad van named beast um we didn't really put in an official offer on the on the vehicle but dan if you want to um sell it to us we'd be we'd be more than happy to try and purchase it <laughs> currently actually sprinter van update our sprinter van the cedar skier sprinter van is still sitting over in billings right now we're still waiting on an update on parts coming in so for those of you on your on your knees right now praying for the safety of enoch to return and never die living out his namesake um it's still coming we're, we're hope- hopefully going to get him back uh, but anyway, this this show brought to you today by the United States Ski Pole Company and the Cedar Skier Podcast. We're so happy that you could join us. We're going to get to the interview um, here in just a moment. and But before we do, you can check out cedarskier.com for some articles. And we have a big story ready to go about Dan Hobbs that I think is a great read. If you're more into uh, taking in and, and <laughs> reliving the drama that way, uh, that story is going to be coming out. We've we've submitted it to a few different outlets, so at the moment we're waiting to to hear back from them. And uh, if if we kind of you know, I guess our if we, I guess if we're rejected, which in some in some way that would just be incredible. If you know, there's no Colorado outpost that would want to uh, publicize this incredible feat, which happened here in the Centennial State. Uh, then I guess you'll see it on cedarskier.com. But keep your eyes peeled. We'll, we'll link that story as soon as it is out, whether it's on Outside or Trail Runner, uh, Minnesota Mag, actually, or Minnesota Monthly. We do know that they are interested in our story as well. So we, we have a, a detailed version, a shortened down version. Uh, both are, are pretty good reads, and I'm, I'm really chomping at the bit to get that out there because I'm very excited about uh, sharing Dan's story in that way as well. But excited you could make it here and um, without further ado we are going to hop into our interview like us subscribe you can find our podcast on anchor cedarskier.com as well thank you for joining us here it is dan hobbs uh so yeah that's kind of my midwest background but i'm curious what yours is you know are you a life lifetime long time there yeah, so I, I, was, I was actually born in Colorado, um, but I don't remember much of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, was, I don't really know how old I was when I, when we moved. I was really young, um, and then I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, um, a small farm like way out in the country in rural Wisconsin, and uh
Um, did you go to uh, Concordia and St. Paul then? No, no, uh, Concordia and Moorhead. In Moorhead, okay. All right, yeah, because yeah. I know there's Concordias around the country, I think. Uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I live in Bloomington, Minnesota now. I'm a flatlander, and um, so that was a bit of a challenge to set up mountain records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while, while living in uh, in Minnesota. Um, so yeah, it was kind of wild, but uh, uh, my, my parents actually moved to Col- back to Colorado, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, probably closer to 15 years ago. Um, so I have family out there. That makes it easier to visit when I'm out there. And uh, There's a shuttle from the airport that basically goes straight to their house. So I, I fly into Colorado, head to their house. I keep beast my uh, my big four-wheel drive van out there at their place, and that's how I get into the mountains. But, um, uh, oh, yeah, wow. I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it works out really well. Um <laughs> And uh, the biggest hill I have here, so I, I moved to uh, Bloomington a little over a year ago, and we lived right on Highland Park, which is like 2,600 acres of uh, yep. just pure, na- pure nature. It's gorgeous. There's 30-some miles of trails. Uh, but my, my big training hill out here is 140 feet. <laughs> well, I, I definitely, I got to ask you about that, uh, the training aspect, and I'm going to get to that, but before I do, just kind of walk me through the kind of who, what, where, when of your record and, and how old you are, too. Yeah, so I'm 36, um, and I'm not super young, but I'm, I think I'm, I'm in the good sweet spot of endurance, um, uh, according to science, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the what? Uh, so this was a self-supported 14er record. Um, I did all 58 of the 14ers. I mean, there's like, you know, some people say there's 53, some people say there's 55. Um, it's got to become just standard to do all 58 of the traditionally counted 14ers, uh, whether they actually qualify or not. Um, and they uh, finished in 14 days and 17 hours and 33 minutes. Um, the who, um, obviously myself, but like my entire family was so awesome on the preparation side of this. I mean, this is we, we can talk about it later, uh, later. But like, this is not something that just randomly happens. This was years of preparation, um, and so I mean, everything from building out my van to cooking food, like my whole family was involved. Uh, and then I had some some really good friends who trained with me uh, here back in Minnesota. It was. It was a grueling, long uh, procedure <laughs> to, get, to get in shape to do this. And so I had friends who would go out with me in the outdoors. My friend Kevin, um, I hate going to the gym with a passion, but sometimes I had to do that. And uh, uh, my friend Kevin would go to the gym with me um, uh, quite often, just just so there's somebody to talk to on the treadmill or on the stair climber. So, um, uh, I think we covered the where. And uh, let's see when. Um, I mean, it really started in 2013. Uh, so I did the 14ers the first time. Uh, I completed them in 2013. And did you just do them in a year? That or, or did you like that was when you did your last one? Um, so no, I did them all in a year. Okay. Um, so I, 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 uh, I was struggling with some really severe depression that year. That was kind of my. My uh, 
my goal was to finish them all. I actually did them all the first time in 24 days. Wow. <laughs> and it was like minimal mountain experience. And the whole thing that I showed up in Colorado with the Saturn car <laughs> and like no plan. I printed off a bunch of 14 year routes. I found a Toyota Tacoma uh, all in the one week and like bought a pile of food and just went and did them. Um, and that was my path. Yeah, I tap out of depression, and it worked, and it really, like, changed the direction of my life. Um, and, but when I got done, I was like, man, I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I got lost driving, so I, like, spent a whole day driving in circles because I just had this paper map that didn't have roads where they were supposed to be. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so when I got done, I was like, man, I could have done that so much faster if I had just known, and then I wasn't really aware of the record then, but it, that, that started the... The idea of it, um, and then in 2015, uh, after seeing uh, an article on Andrew Hamilton's record, um, when he set the, the supported record, I decided that this is what I wanted to do, um, but it wasn't until two years ago that life kind of aligned uh, in a way that I could actually spend the time to make this happen. So that was so two years ago, really right when COVID hit. Um, a lot of other things in my life kind of lined up, so, um, and, uh, so yeah, that's really, really been two years of preparations for that. And you, you started July 4th was day one, right? Um, actually July 5th at one thirty a.m. Okay, um, okay. So I, I went up, uh, the train on July 4th to get to Chicago Basin, um, the night before, and then... And did you have to like um, record via GPS, upload all that stuff? Like, is the record that much of a people are going to really look into it, or was it more actually recording just like your start time when you started and your finish time when you finished? I mean, I know some of these like FKT stuff, it's really intense there, but I mean, I would almost think that would be a logistical nightmare too of just keeping track of all your files and making sure your phone or or your watch is like charged. I mean, was that the case? Yeah, it was actually way more intense on the tracking than I was hoping. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this was my first big FKT, uh, my first 14 years FKT, too. And um, Andrew Hamilton was really great. Like, he did a lot of mentoring for me um, beforehand, like, helping me out. Because I was like, there's no way I'm going to, like, track every second of this. And I was like, you know, exactly what you said. I was like, how am I going to keep all my stuff charged? And he's like, dude, you just got to figure out how to do it. Because no one's going to believe you did this unless you actually do all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it was live tracked uh, with a Garmin in reach uh, from the moment I started till the moment I finished. Uh, it was it was live and on the internet, and people, like, got super involved in it, too. I mean, there was people that would, like, wake up in the middle of the night just to see where Dan was. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, yeah, I had no idea that was going to happen. It was, like, afterwards I found out about all this. And there was, like, people all over the world, like, my uncle told me there's people in Saudi Arabia tracking me. That <laughs> 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 he had, like, shared it with. So that was, like, super cool. Uh, and all that happened. Yeah, it was, it was really intense. And I, I I recorded it all on my watch, but the live tracker went 24 hours a day. So I had to make sure every time I got back in my van, I plugged in the live tracker to make sure it was charged. <laughs> Is um, the rule of summoning the 14ers at play in terms of like, I know there's a few, I think there's a few, 
mountains that yeah. uh, you don't have to go all the way down low to summit. You know, you just like go across a saddle or whatever. Is it, do you have to abide by that in any way? Did you have to figure that out too? Or was it like, oh, there's the top of the mountain. I can just walk across this saddle and be there. And that, that was fine. Sure. Yeah, so the, the way the, the rules work in the 14ers is you have to do at least as much as the prior record holder. Um, so whatever they did, you got to do at least that much and maybe more. Um, if you, it's kind of voluntary if you want to do more. And I decided that I wanted to bring the self-supported record up to the, the kind of the standards that everybody else was following in on some of the other records. So um, so I followed what they call the Colorado rule. Um, and what that is, is uh, you have to start at least 3,000 feet below the first summit of a set of mountains um, that you're going to do on foot. So when you leave your vehicle, your vehicle has to be empirically below 3,000 feet. So if it's a, uh, a 14,000 foot, exactly 14,000 foot mountain, you'd have to, your vehicle would have to be parked at or below 11,000 feet. Um, it doesn't matter if you go up and down in the middle and end up with 4,000 feet of elevation by the time you got there, your vehicle has to be below 3,000 feet below the summit. Um, and so I followed that, and then you can string them together so you don't have to do, you don't have to then descend 3,000 feet of that one. Yeah. And, the, and then go back 3,000 feet up just to get to the one that's right next to it. As long as you're on foot and after you left your vehicle, it's 3,000 feet to the first one. And then you have to descend 3,000 feet off of the last one to your vehicle. So you want to, you got to like really make sure you have it all figured out because the first one might be 14,300 and the last one you do in a set might be 14,050. That means you're, you know, you'd have to descend farther than you had to ascend. Um, and so you got to figure that out ahead of time and know, know exactly where to start and stop and do all that good stuff. Wow. And I, and you mentioned the logistics. It was a lot of planning, and I'm sure some of that came into play. How long did it take you to make that plan, and, and how much were you relying on resources from the other record holder, like of just going, okay, this is what you did, this is what I'm going to do? Or, or were you convinced of, hey, maybe that wasn't the most efficient way, like either in the order, you know, or or whatever? Yeah, so there wasn't much, uh, actually I shouldn't say much, there was no history from the prior record holder, Peter Jones, as to what he did okay. um, on, on the self-supported route. Uh, but I did, like, so much of this is based off of the hard work from uh, Cave Dog, Teddy Kaiser, and Andrew Hamilton's supported records. So I kind of used their stuff as a base, but I mean, I spent two years and, and racked up a hundred and some summits, um, and many, many, I mean, probably five, 6,000 miles of driving, um, and hundreds of hours on my computer sorting out how to do this in the most efficient way for the self-supported route, because there wasn't a track, there was no, no one else's self-supported route to base it off of. Um, so I started with the supported records overall route, and then had to do a whole lot of changes um, to narrow it down for a self-supported uh, record. Do you feel like it's the most efficient that you have now, like this, or or having done it actually, is it is there is there room for improvement? You think? Like, are you going to go back and lower this? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it was so hard and so miserable. I suffered so much. <laughs> there was there was there was nothing. 
like people like, oh, that's so cool. I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. It was just pure suffering. <laughs> um, um, it was it was so hard. Um, so unless someone breaks my record, I have no intention to go back and do it again, just because it was just just so hard. Um, and it just took so much out of me. Um, however, I do think there is some room for improvement. Um, I, I did learn. I had I had practiced every single thing I did on the entire on the entire record um, before. But I did I do think specifically on one day I think I might be able to cut out half a day now that I kind of uh, learned some of these things uh, during the record. So yeah, I think the general public, you're, you're, that's a little bit of a surprise because I think they would look and go, oh, here's a guy who likes hiking and he's just able to hike nonstop and really fast. But, but it sounds to me like for you, this was a lot more about, you know, hey, I've already hiked all 58. I want to like truly test the limit, you know, and and it's probably gonna be brutal. (laughs) But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. What's the motivation behind that? I mean, I'm curious you know, kind of your why, why put yourself through that? What was the, what was the biggest motivation to do that? Was, is it internal thing, external competition? I mean, kind of explain that. Yeah, definitely internal. So, um, like I was saying in 2015, um, I, uh, um, in my background, I've owned a couple of different companies. Um, and then most recently I worked for a nonprofit, but I was, uh, working, I owned a company. I was in my downtown Minneapolis office, and I saw that Andrew Hamilton had set the supported record, and I pulled up this news article about it. And very specific memory, I was sitting there at my desk with like a suit jacket on. And I was like, I guess it was a sport coat, but <laughs> um, I was like, you know, and it just occurred to me that there was one thing in my life that if I got older and I didn't try for it, I would just hate myself. I just couldn't live with it, and that was setting this this record um, and they just hit me like a ton of bricks like what am I doing what am I, why am I sitting here with this you know all dressed up fancy at my desk in downtown Minneapolis when this isn't what I care about um, I really that was the one thing and so kind of from that moment on it was it was decided in my head I was going to do this and then two years ago when I left my job at a nonprofit, uh I just said, I'm going to set that record, and that's it. And I never looked back. Like, it was never a question. I no, no longer needed motivation. Um, it just, I had made that decision, and it was going to happen. And uh, So, yeah, that was that was kind of it. Um, I, I've had actually a lot of people ask me that question. Like, how did you keep going? And I was like, I never, that was never a question. Like, <laughs> I was going to finish. And then, um, I mean, the other part, like, this costs so much out of, my life and there was so much training and so much like pain to get into it and then also like for my family they all like everyone in my family sacrificed so much for me to do this Uh, you know once I got started it was like I had to honor all the investment everyone else had put into me and just finish (laughs) but like there were times during the race I was like this is just not worth it I just want to quit and I don't care and I was like yeah but everybody else has put so much into this I got it I got to do it for them. Um, and so that, that helped push me through the toughest times. Did you say, walk me through your career careers again. Did you say you owned companies when you were working in downtown Minneapolis? Yeah, yeah. So I had uh, uh, two different tech startups. And I actually got started with a lawn care company in college. They grew 
and became quite large, and I sold that in my 20s. Um, and then, um, yeah, I had two different tech startups, and then worked in the construction industry. Uh, with my, I had my own business in the construction industry, and then I went to work for an international development nonprofit. And so, you, but two years ago, you walked away from from all that. So you actually weren't working at all when you were training the lead up to this. You didn't have a job. Yeah, I, I would not say I was not working. I did not have a formal job. I own, okay. I own a bunch of rental properties, and we ended up remodeling five properties. Okay. <laughs> from from the start of COVID until eighteen months into it, uh, we remodeled five properties, <laughs> and so. That was a that was a lot of work. It just wasn't like a job per se. Um, okay. I was training. I was able to train during that time because you know I was on my own schedule. Um, you know I could I could show up and work on the houses when I needed to and train when I needed to. Um, but then for the last almost a year, I was more full time training. So take take me to that moment when you're in the office. You're all dressed up. I could kind of imagine like. You know, it's one of those. What am I doing? What am I doing with my life? If I, if I, I, I like this isn't fulfilling, kind of yeah. a thing. But, but yeah. you, you said, okay, this record is what I really wanted to do. Was it? Was it specifically like you know, record setting through hiking, or was it more? I just want to like do something that is challenging, meaningful. Like it's not like your family has this history of like you know, through hiking record setting, or were you like a five-year-old and going, I want to set the 58, you know, 14 a record, you know? So what was it, was it kind of more of that where it was like, I just, I'm going to pick something and like go for it that gets me outside and gets me like actually living. Was it, was it more of that? Or was there actually something special about the activity itself? Maybe that's a good time, you know, you know too, if you want to like go into your sporting background or whatever, like how you think you feel like you ended up there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually have zero sporting background <laughs> okay. at all. Um, so I grew up. I was actually homeschooled, um, and I never, I was never once participated in a formal sport um, as, a, as a kid or anything. Growing <laughs> up, uh, what I what I did the four years the first time uh, in uh, 2013, um, that was a that was probably, you could say, the first time I ever really applied myself to any athletic endeavor. Um, and um, I, after that, I picked up running, and um, I've run, I don't know, four, I don't actually remember the number, four or five marathons now, and, you know, dozens of other running races. Um, and with that all, I mean, I was 27 years old, basically, when all, 26 when all that started. Um so up until that point in my life, I had done literally nothing athletic uh, <laughs> of note. So, uh, yeah, very, um, this was a definitely a late life stage for me. Uh, but it's given me so much life. So to answer your question, um, you know, nobody in my family history has records, or, you know, has a history of setting these kind of records. When I started the, the 58 the first time in 2013, I didn't actually know there was 58. Uh, <laughs> Basically found out, you know, I was like, I had decided I was going to do it and then found out later how many there were. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a lot. Uh, that's going to be harder than I thought. Um, um, and so, yeah, it was definitely a, a late life thing. And, and as far as, you know, what what my motivation was is, 
I'm an Enneagram 3, so accomplishment is kind of one of the things that drives me. And um, I, I, I think I realized in 2013 that I, I would not say I'm an especially talented person in any way at any certain thing. You know, I'm not, I just, it's just, you know, I'm pretty average, I guess you could say. But the one thing I realized I do have is that I, I am, I was born with an unnaturally low body weight. <laughs> I don't know how to say it any other than that. I weigh like 145 pounds. Um, and um, for my, and I'm five foot 11. Um, and I'm, but I'm fairly strong, and so I realized, like, I was born with this gift that gravity has less of a pull on me than other folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know that sounds really weird, but, like, I, you know, and so yeah. for me, it was like, this This is the one shot I have to set a record in life, is in the mountains, and I can go uphill easier and faster, and when I, you know, and I'm, and I'm really, like, my, my parents... My dad specifically really believed in self-control and doing hard things growing up, and he made me do all sorts of crazy things that taught me a high level of self-control and how to do difficult things and just keep your nose to the grind wheel. Um, and so a combination of those things, I just for me it was like, this is my one shot to accomplish a goal or a record that, I may be better than everyone else at. Like, I couldn't think of anything else in my life. And so, for me, that just kind of drove me. Like, this is it. This is my one shot, and I just got to do this. And that, that's how it was. That's so fascinating. Um, I was actually homeschooled myself for uh, oh, yeah? six years. So, yeah. It, it, and you and you said Wisconsin, right? Where about in Wisconsin? Yeah. Uh, it was south of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. So, Eau Claire is like 100 miles straight east of Twin Cities, and then I was kind of I was down in the, the hill country, okay. Mondovi, Wisconsin. Yeah, and you were homeschooled all the way through high school. Yeah, so okay. I, I went to elementary school at public school, but then after that, I was homeschooled all the way through. And, and where did you go to college? Uh, UW Eau Claire. I, I mean, that's I paid for college in lawn, by by mowing lawns, and then I. Uh, it was kind of right at the start of the green movement, so I started doing organic lawn treatments, and then that actually blew up, got pretty huge. Wow. I mean, it is kind of interesting. You, you describe yourself like I'm this kind of average person, but yet you're obviously not average if you started up multiple companies, you know, some and ended up, you know, in a suit in downtown Minneapolis, you know, at that point in your life, even you're like, that's pretty amazing too, that you obviously had some drive and you said your dad kind of forced you to do challenging things. What, what were some, were there any like things that stuck out or was it more like he was the type of dad who's just kind of always going to make sure my kids are going to know what it's like to be uncomfortable you know and, and be able to be okay with it yeah i mean he definitely did that um but also there's one thing that really sticks in my mind <laughs> and it's gonna sound really dumb but uh, so my dad made me uh, i actually have really poor hand-eye coordination okay. um, i'm not the best like technical climber like i i, I I even suck at video games because I'm just like my fingers don't do what my brain wants them to. And um, and for whatever reason, my dad decided that I needed to learn how to play horseshoes, and I hated horse the game, like you know the throw the horseshoe on the on the ring thing. Yeah, we yeah. had a horse. He like put in a horseshoe pit at our house out in the country for whatever I don't know why. Um, and he made me practice an hour every day for thirty days straight. 
and I hated horseshoes, and I was terrible at it, and I hated it because I was terrible at it, and I hated it because it was boring, and I was, I was like 14 years old, and like what 14-year-old kid wants to spend an hour every day throwing horseshoes? Uh, <laughs> and, and throw an hour every day, and it, that actually was one of the most important lessons of my life, because I learned like, you know, you hated it to start with, but then pretty miserable to hate something so I just taught myself to like it and then I taught myself to be good at it and by the end of 30 days I both enjoyed horseshoes and was pretty darn good at it and that changed my perspective on just about everything in life um, that you can you can learn to like something you hate and you can learn to be good at something you're bad at um, you just gotta change your mental attitude and then work hard at it that's wild oh man and yeah when I first saw this one of the things I thought of your record was um, I, like the technical fi- uh, 14ers out there that are kind of dangerous. And, you know, I, I was trying to, I was thinking like, I wonder if this is a guy who's got some pedigree climbing wise. And, and to me, it sounds like, you know, when you started saying, yeah, I really don't have much athletic background at all here. And, you know, I'm not coordinated. So were you, when you ventured out here, like again, kind of going back to when you're sitting in that suit in the office building going, I'm going to go do this. I, I would imagine at that point, you're not even aware of like some of the extreme, you know, the Little Bears, the Capitol Peak stuff, the Longs Peak, like some of those kind of intense moments that can happen on the mountain that you need to be fluent at handling. So what was that true? And like, how did you um, kind of grow into someone who could summit these? Because I think it's important to note, too, that the summiting all 58 isn't just a willingness to hike a long way like you actually do have to have some ability and and like you know i guess grit mentally to handle kind of freaky moments <laughs> yeah yeah definitely well like i said i mean i, I did do them in 2013 but i will say sure I spent I spent the majority of those twenty four days scared to death. Wow. <laughs> I was that was like mentally that was a very hard twenty four days because I that was it was over my ability and um, and it rained actually nineteen out of the twenty four days um, when I when I did that um, it was some really rough weather so um, yeah I mean it was kind of trial by fire um, but that that helps and some of the horseshoes like. I, I do. I am very uncoordinated, and I'm not the greatest on the technical. But I taught myself. Um, and I earlier in life, I was very much scared of heights, and I I taught myself how to mentally stay in control from that that uh, you know that innate fear I had. Um, and so you know, even even today, I just learned like I don't ever look down. It's just something I have to do because all of a sudden my heart starts beating. I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> Uh, so I just, you know, mental control over yourself. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of um, really tough situations. Um, and I, it, it helps, like I've done all of them other than Calibra at least three times. Um, some of them I've done five to seven times now. So it really helps to have the experience on them. Um, but uh, yeah, I was not prepared for some of the difficulty during the race. Like, I I had not done the most technical mountains in any kind of bad weather ever. I'd always had good weather on the most technical portions, and then, uh, like, I did the 
the first day was really rough. On Alois, it was in the middle of the night, and it was drizzling, and it was so soft, and I could only see 15 feet, and I got lost like 20 times. That was a very tough experience. Um, and then on the, the Maroon Bells Traverse, um, it rained soon as I got to the hard part of South and it started pouring rain and then by the time I got close to the summit I was in a lightning storm and a hail storm and it turned into a snowstorm um, and I ended up doing the traverse completely soaked and you know hail piled up and so that was I was not ready for that and that was definitely a a mental low point for me trying to push myself through that what would you say was the best and worst parts of this as a whole? Um, you know, it was hard through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> every day I thought, oh man, tomorrow's going to be a little easier, and it never was. Like, every day was was maximum difficulty <laughs> all the way through the end. Um, but uh, I would definitely say the best part I mean, the incredible scenery and sunset and just the, the peace that the mountains bring um, was was huge. I mean, I just I saw so many incredible sights and just the, you know, I have, I, I don't know how to word that the, the mountains just bring peace to, like, your inner soul. Even even on a record like this, there was a, there was a sense of inner peace from the mountains. Um, and then the worst part of it for sure I ended up actually with stomach thick eight out of the 14 days um, and that was that was definitely the worst part um, I think it actually made it like 40 to 50 percent harder in my in my opinion um, so I uh, I had a lot of I had a lot of rough summits where I was nauseous dizzy throwing up um, uh, so I, I discovered I my body decided a strange time to really emphasize a dairy allergy that I didn't know I had. Wow. Um, and so I figured that out on day five, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was day five, I figured that out. And then um, that actually, it made the whole, so I started the entire event, uh, the entire record with um, every piece of food I was going to, I was going to eat for the whole thing. I started I started with. I had, I had two freezers in my van and um, lots of food, but about 75% of it had dairy in it because I never knew this was a problem for me. Um, and then I, it just made me so sick. Um, so then when I figured that out on day five or six, I only had a quarter of the food available to me. <laughs> so it made the whole thing very hard. And then I accidentally had some dairy on the second to last day, and I spent the last two days stomach sick as well. Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The day to day, like, are you? I suppose you're hiking about what? Is that like four, four peaks a day? About like, how much were you sleeping and driving and actually hiking per day? Yeah. I Obviously, am, it's gonna vary a little bit, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it varies a, a lot. It, it ended up being. Um, so part of my like two years of planning, I made this like incredible spreadsheet where every minute of every day was planned out, every minute of sleep, every minute of driving, every minute of eating, the whole thing was planned out. And of course, that all kind of went to hell as soon as the thing started. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, 
Yeah, so I, I still don't know exactly what I slept. I'm going to say it was probably on average like three and a half hours a day probably was really what I got for sleep. Um, and I haven't, I haven't taken the time to like go back through my records and figure out exactly Jeez. what it is. I, I'm just going to say it was probably on average that. Um, the driving, as far as like what was hard, the climbing was not the hardest part of the self-supported record. Um, and there was a guy, uh, Brent, who who tried this last year, and he had to he had to um, call it off about halfway through. And that's what he warned me about: is like the, the climbing isn't going to be the hard part, man. You really got to it's it's the driving and and trying to take care of yourself, being your own crew leader. Um, and that turned out to be like for real the hardest part I had days where I, I drove nine hours in one day um and um you know and climbed three mountains <laughs> um Jeez. and so yeah it was and it, that part was so hard and there's so much four-wheel drive driving too um yeah I, I think the biggest difference between the supported and the self-supported is that whenever a supported record setter gets in a vehicle they they eat and go to sleep while the while the vehicle somebody else is driving the vehicle and there's so much like super stressful four-wheel drive driving on this record yeah. and i did i did i did as much of the driving in the middle of the night as i could because um i learned in my training that the traffic can just just wreck your times um especially on the four-wheel drive roads because they're often one lane and then, you know, somebody's coming the other way or somebody's going slow and you can't get around them and they can take, you know, you just start adding tons of time. So I tried to do the driving in the middle of the night, but then there's there's a lot of days where I've been up more than 20 hours straight climbing and then driving through the middle of the night on four-wheel drive roads. And, and that was all very difficult. Um, just I, I, I underestimated the stress of the driving aspect of it. Uh, and I and I plan to do um, as much, like I tried to multitask as much as possible. So I was trying to, I actually had a microwave in my van that faced my driver's seat. <laughs> so I, I took the passenger seat out of my van and put a microwave there facing me so I could, I could heat my food up and eat it while I was driving, and everything I made was in handheld form, so I didn't have to use a spoon or anything while I was driving. I could just hang on to it, and then, um, you know, I did as much stuff as I could safely while driving. Um, and I also I made it very clear from the rules from the get-go that I it was extremely important to never be dangerous while driving. Um, and so I never pushed it while driving where I felt like I was going to fall asleep or, um, I, you know, cause any harm to myself and certainly not to anybody else. Um, and so trying to maintain that line while multitasking, while being up for 20-some hours straight, while driving a four-wheel drive road in the middle of the night was a very difficult prospect. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, do you – did was it ever – was there ever any moments, too, where you're, like, you're exhausted – beyond maybe maybe you got yourself to the trailhead but you're you, you know you're getting up to where it is technical from a climbing perspective too and you're like man is this is this safe for me like could i fall off of this peak here <laughs> yeah um uh, yeah i mean definitely on the bells when it was in a storm on the traverse uh, and you're and sick was, and everything yeah 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 so that was definitely a kind of a low point actually the hardest day not not like empirically hardest. I think the Capital Snowmass Day is probably the hardest, both by miles and then 
some difficulty, but for me, the hardest day was the day I did um, Little Bear and Blanca in Ellingwood um, because I was so sick that day. Um, I ended up having to skip the Little Bear Traverse to Blanca because I could barely, like, stand up straight. Um, I was, like, falling over. I was so nauseous and dizzy from being stomach sick. And just fatigue because, like, you know, it's like trying to do this with the flu, basically. Yeah. Um, and so that day was definitely the hardest for me. And it was, I don't remember, I, I think I started at 3 or 4 a.m. and I finished at 2 a.m. the following day. So it was, it was almost 24 hours straight. Uh, and so, and I was so sick. So, yeah, that was, having to skip that traverse added 2,000 feet of elevation and, like, an hour of time. Um, but it was the right thing to do because I don't think I would have made it across. I think I would have probably fallen off of it. Um, and even going up Wonka, which I think is just, I think it's just a class two, but if you, the left side of it's got, like, a 500-foot cliff on the ridge. I was, like almost falling off I almost fell off the side of it uh, <laughs> and it's like 10 feet wide right there I just I was I couldn't even stand up straight it was, it was so hard it was so bad how did you get up um, Little Bear then you went did you go down and then back up the like bottleneck yeah so I went up and down the the uh, um, uh, the gully on that one the standard route um, through the bottleneck so yeah it was uh not the fastest, but uh, I've done a little bit a lot, and actually, it was my sixth time on it. I almost, I almost got killed last year on it. So another hiker triggered a huge rockfall, um, and I was laying up against the side of the mountain. Rocks were flying over my head, so I really don't like it. Uh, but, but I've also done it uh, twice now in a rainstorm and training, and so I actually had good weather, so it didn't seem as bad as either when the hiker tried to kill me and they, they didn't try to kill me they just yeah yeah they, they, you know they were they were irresponsible or you know during a rainstorm was harder too so that was alright it, it, it could have been worse I, I actually feel like that's you know, going across the traverse versus doing the bottleneck when you're in that state of being that that isn't really to me seem like a safe way out am I crazy thinking that no the the um yeah, coming down through that is, uh, it's not safe. It just was safer than, uh, Metroverse is really, like, it's a knife edge for a mile and a half. Okay. Um, and when I was so nauseous, I couldn't stand up straight. I just knew that was the wrong decision to, yeah. to do. Uh, you know, and I knew that it, it was, it, you know, I, I, in my head, I was like, "There's a minimal chance I'm going to survive that in my current state, so I'll take the, I'll take the gully instead." Um, and that was the, it was, you know, it was like, it was late afternoon when I got to the top a little better. Um, it was basically sunset when I got over to Blanca, um, so there was nobody else up there. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. But Little Bear is much less dangerous if you're the only one on it. It's really other people that are the scariest. Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, and as far as, I mean, you kind of have walked us through some of the scariest, scarier moments. I, I, Do you have any, like, weird moment or something that was bizarre? I mean, when you're up, I just can't imagine being up for 20 hours, you know, a day for uh, two weeks. But, like, I imagine yeah. you must have seen some weird stuff. Animals, people, I don't know. Like, yeah, did, did anything stick out? 
Or are you just so focused, I guess? I don't think you, I don't think you want this. <laughs> All right, so the two, I would say weird things. I don't think you want this in your article. <laughs> somebody, I've never seen this before. Somebody, like, pooped their pants on, um, on, uh, hum, on Humboldt. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. It was, like, it was so bad. It was like, and then when I came down, there was a marmot eating them, and it was. Just... Yeah. That okay. So that's wild that you say that. I I was actually in Minnesota, biking, doing like a point to point while my wife and I were visiting, and I saw the exact same thing on like a t- just twenty miles into a sixty mile ride. You know, nothing extreme here. Like I'm just biking, and it was. Yeah. I got to this intersection on a trail. And yeah, there was this older man. He had just pooped himself completely, and he had his pants at his ankles, and he was just kind of like wiping his butt. Like I'm in the, you know, I'm oh, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm not gonna see anyone. And I just didn't even say anything because I was just like, all right, if you're at that point, you know, like yeah, I, got, I I'm sorry, man. I'm just gonna act like I'm invisible. That's funny that you saw the same thing I did, doing something yeah. much more extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just cute. I mean, I feel bad for the guy. But yeah. Like also. Oh, that's <laughs> crazy. Do you have a a favorite peak or favorite moment kind of from this whole thing? Um, yeah, so I actually had fun on the day the, the, the day you did the Crestones. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a huge day. Like, you do five 14ers in one loop, uh, but you actually end up getting basically nine mountains because there's two 13ers that are at, like, 13.9. What was uh, kind of going through your mind the moment you came out of that last trailhead? Like, what what are the what's the flood of feeling and emotions? Yeah, um, um, this isn't. I'm just honest on 
this one. I would say that was the other weird thing. So, I the day before I had a total, the night before, the afternoon before, I had a total mental breakdown on actually coming off of Lincoln on the on the Decalibron group, which is like super easy. But I, uh, I just lost it. I mean, everything, everything has kind of built up to that point. I had basically not slept in almost two days. And I just had a complete mental breakdown, like screaming and crying and throwing things. I was like a two-year-old having a tantrum except a 36-year-old full-size guy. Yeah. Um, and it just, I mean, I just, I, I think there was a big storm coming in, and I just, I just lost it completely. Um, and I, I, that was my, like, probably mental rock bottom. Um, it was the second to last day, and it just took everything out of me. And I... I really feel like I lost a piece of my humanity in that, uh, on this race, and, like, it just, I felt empty after that, and I don't know how to say it other than that. Like, I didn't have any emotion at all anymore. And up until that point, like, I had cried probably every day, and I'd, like, probably cried, like, ten times thinking about how incredible the finish was going to be. Um, like, before I got to the finish, I, I would cry about it, you know? <laughs> and then... I, when I when I had that like mental breakdown um, coming off of Lincoln, and uh, to the last day and a half, I had there was nothing there. I mean, I didn't. I just remember like I don't feel anything. I don't feel tired. I don't feel sad. I don't feel anything. I just feel blank. I don't have anything left. And so I thought that the ending was going to be so dramatic and incredible, and like my family was going to be there, and we're all going to cry, and I and I just like then I collapsed at the end it was just like I'm so glad it's over I can't move <laughs> and I know that's uh, I, you know as a writer that's not real motivating I just and it made me really upset actually because I wanted it to be emotional and like I'm a fairly emotional guy and I really wanted to have like that moment um, to be really special and I feel like the, the record took that from me I think it, it took everything and it, and it drained me and I just I didn't have that at the end uh, oh that's I so human. Where where your family was it your mom and dad? Are you married? Like who all was there? Yeah, so my wife, my my dad and then some a guy from the fourteeners community and um a friend of my parents showed up. So it was a pretty small turnout. <laughs> which was fine. I actually yeah. I didn't want a lot of people there. Um I, I might have even like preferred to be alone at the finish line for a little while at least, just to like internalize what I had just gone through you know I think it takes takes some some reflection to, to really process that um, um, but yeah and then my mom was down at the parking lot so the finish line isn't like at your vehicle it's 3,000 feet below the last summit um, which okay. is which is quite because long is like 5,500 feet so it's like a long ways from the parking lot long so it's way up above tree line actually <laughs> um, so um but yeah, that, that was that. Actually, I I didn't run a, at all the entire the entire record. I never ran, um, and none of the current records people run on because it's it's too long. And, and the real patented way to set these records is to go slow and never sleep. Um, but uh, it, when I got to the top of Longs, I, you know, the last one, I, I ran from the top of Longs all the way down to the finish line, and. Um, and so the, the 
folks that were waiting for me didn't think I was going to be there for like another hour. <laughs> and so nobody even saw me coming. And I was like running down the trail like, hey, I'm coming. They were like, what? Barely, I didn't even actually get a photo of my finish. They, they got a video. Um, but nobody was ready to like take a picture or anything like that. <laughs> so, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, so isn't Longs is a, a that's so that was the last one. That one can be kind of hairy, right? If the weather's bad, did you just kind of luck out? Um, it actually rains pretty hard on the way up. Um, so right before, and I did the cables route, which is especially harder and dangerous than the standard route because um, it's also faster but um, so yeah it was like I was coming up above tree line and it just like the whole top of the mountain was, was getting blasted um, and that didn't you know in my head I was like I was like alright god we could have just had like the last one easy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's actually like when I had my meltdown on Lincoln I was like mad at the world and mad at God because the storm was coming in. I was like, yes, I just, you know, I just wanted an easy, something easy for once, and it was just like not happening. And so coming up long, it was like pouring out on the mountain right as I was getting into it. And I had to like put all my rain gear on, and I got up to the cables out, and I was like, I'm just gonna do it and go up. And then I, I decided it was not safe to come down that way. Yeah, because it was just super, super wet. Um, and so I ended up going down the standard route, which I kind of slid down the whole home stretch. It was so slick because it was soaking wet. Um, but it's all good. Uh, it was it was the last one. I, I don't think I cared at that point. So, are you a a spiritual person? You have uh, you know you talk of God. You have a faith that uh, was kind of a part of this, part of your life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it was a huge part for me. I am a spiritual person. I'm a Christian. Um, I think, uh, you know, when I did them in 2013, um, I had kind of left my faith completely and um, was suffering in deep depression. And so part of that journey of, like, finding myself, finding my way out of depression was also finding God, and I really found out in the mountains um, and I would say I still by far that is my most spiritual place in, on earth is, is in the mountains um, I don't really have words to explain it I just you're kind of in I would I call it like you're in the God zone like that you're the mountains are in control not you and when you're up there it's it's kind of you and God um, and um, so yeah I, I, and on this record it was a very spiritual Thing for me as well, um, you know, a lot of a lot of long conversations were had between me and God throughout the record. That's uh, that's cool. It's probably a whole another podcast in itself. I, I my I have two podcasts. One of them is just my ski podcast, and the other one is called Skiologians, and it's where I basically kind of intertwine theological concepts and sports and stuff. So, like uh, that would be a fascinating, you know, look. I mean, I'm actually just kind of curious. You, you said you walked away from your faith a little bit. I mean, what is what uh what church did you grow up in where you're was that part of the homeschooling aspect as well like keeping a christian education yeah. um you could you kind of explain that a little bit just like your testimonial background i guess um yeah i mean i grew up i had a weird childhood i mean i grew up i would i would call it a cult and not and i don't use that term lightly um where um i started off as a church and turned into a cult over time and the 
the, the leader guy, um, kind of took the place of God in that. Um, and so, and then a lot of bad things happened. A lot of abuse, a lot of families were torn apart intentionally. Like husbands were, or wives were forced to leave their husband if the leader, if the husband wanted to do what the leader told them to do. And it was really like, it got really messed up and dark. So for me, that's a huge part of my life. Um, like my mom, you know, women were treated like property. The whole thing was not, and it wasn't like an organized religion called it was just this one small group in rural wisconsin um on their own um and so that was that was rough and people were basically forced to get married at a very young age and i was i was in that group so i'm I'm remarried um and i got married young and had kids very young and it didn't work out at all um and that's where the depression came in uh was post post divorce um i just i didn't know how to how to handle that and, and and the call that I grew up in like if you get divorced you're condemned to hell according to the leader there and, sure. so, and so that was like that was where I was coming from um, and so yeah I had a, a, a journey of you know I had turned my back on God um, the God I knew was a God of you know damnation and judgment and no love um, and then so my journey my journey in those years where I did the where I did the 14 years the first time was finding out that God is a God of love and um, a God who you know doesn't matter what you do God loves you all the same um, and I struggled with suicide and all sorts of things and so there was a journey out of that um, and finding God and the mountains played a huge part of that wow um, and, and uh, yeah now I'm in a much better place you know? I have a great church and um, a good family and all that sort of stuff that's crazy. That's that is a crazy, uh, crazy journey. Wow. Um, it is fascinating. I mean, it, it adds a, for sure a layer. And I'm because I, I was gonna ask too about kind of like you know that second to last day. I I can definitely imagine like kind of shouting to the heavens at even the slightest thing when you're working on you know two hours sleep or less and you you're that exhausted. It's just like oh my gosh. But I also you know yeah with that with the background that you had, I was sort of curious if you've sort of now stepping back looked back and gone all right what was happening there and what is the what's the major takeaway or learning thing from this entire ordeal and was that kind of the climax of it you, i don't know if you understand you know kind of what i'm asking but like yeah, yeah how, how yeah. What, what have you what do you think about that uh man biggest takeaway so maybe this is gonna be a little more than one uh kind of two two thoughts um but um, the prior record holder said, or Andrew, who you know didn't hold this record, but the supported record, um, and then Peter, who who held this record. Uh, so I, it, it's standard in the 14er records. You're, you're, it's actually in the rules. You're required to contact the prior record holder before you start. Um, and so I had reached out to Peter Jones, who set this record in the 90s. Um, Super awesome guy was like, dude, you gotta, you gotta get this record from me, man. It's bad. I've had it for too long. <laughs> um, so, super awesome guy, and I ended up meeting him in person after I set the record, and he was even more supportive then. Um, but he warned me, he's like, this is not like what you're about to do is not going to be fun. He said it's going to be really miserable, and you're going to go to some dark places. Um, 
And then Andrew told me the same thing. He's like, You're, this is like suffering at a, at a level that humans should not encounter. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, guys, thanks for like making me feel good, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but the truth was is that it was really what it was. I mean, it was extreme suffering and, and like, to a point of like being mentally twisted. Um, but I, I learned... I learned how to suffer well, um, and, and I think that's a valuable skill in life. And I don't think I don't think it's something anyone is born with. Um, and I just I learned how to how to mentally like be okay with it and to move on. And, and I've worked in nonprofit, I've worked in development, I've been in some of the worst parts of the world. And I would say, you know, people whose entire life they've suffered in extreme ways that I can't even understand, and like the poor and homeless living on the street in India kind of, you know, stuff. And, and there's some of the happiest people I've ever met. Um, and so um, I, I, I think that was a big takeaway for me was, like, how to be happy through the hardest times. Um, and then my mental breakdown, I would say probably the big lesson I got out of that spiritually was God doesn't owe you anything. Other than, you know, to get, you know, I think my conversation with God is God said he'd get me to the finish line, and it was so hard, and, and then my breakdown was just, I just wanted something to feel okay, just not even easy, just like, I just wanted it, like, one day where I wasn't getting hit by lightning or something, and, and, <laughs> and, um, and so I was, like, screaming at God, like, you know, swearing at the top of my lungs, like, yeah, this just fucking be easy for once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, life is hard. Um, so these are, none of these are like really positive things. I'm sorry if it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's, that was, that was the truth is like, it was, it was hard suffering and, and I learned how to do that well, I guess. Um, and, and for that I'm thankful. I'm actually thankful I had that experience because I think at some point in life, you know, lots of hard things tend to happen. So I'm glad I had that. Um, and, uh, I think, I, I think I learned how to be like, mentally happy through hard times, I guess, if I could sum all that up. Sorry for the ramble. I would say that's probably what I could say. Like, you could be happy even though all life is going to hell. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. I mean... That that's a great answer, um, and I I try to do my interviews, you know, getting to this the, that question I think at the end, but I I know I kind of brazed over some of the more light lighthearted stuff, I guess, like the training. I'm curious what a typical training week kind of looked like for you. I mean, did you have specific workouts, specific target goals of like, okay, I'm I am improving the way I want to. Um, and, and sort of, I guess, a benchmark of, I, I know I'm ready for this. I mean, can you kind of walk me through some of the specifics there? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, I, uh, like I said, I live in Minnesota. It's flat. You know that because you grew up in Yeah, yeah. In so. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, my biggest hill, which I, I moved pretty close to, is 140 feet tall. Um, and I knew because I had this so well planned out, I knew kind of what, uh, amount of miles and elevation I needed to do during the race or during the record and um, so I wanted to work up to that so uh, I worked up to about 10,000 feet of elevation a day um, and I was doing between 20 and 25 miles a day um, and I was doing that 
think it was about like six days a week. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it. it might have not been quite that much, but I was trying to get between 100 and 150 miles a week in uh, as well. Um, and so I had a pretty specific goal. Um, and and um, this spring, so obviously Minnesota has terrible weather. Uh, <laughs> so I, I did the I had the Birkebinder ski race. Um, yeah. I, you know that was one of your questions. So I, I knew I needed to do something through the winter because it's so hard to like keep in shape in the winter around here. Yeah. Um, and so I picked up skate skiing. I'd never skate skiing before. Started in December. Um, and uh, ended up doing the Birkebiner, uh, which was a bucket list item for me. I wanted to do it since I was a teenager and figured this was a good year to start. Um, and so I, uh, that kept me like, and, and cross-country skiing is so good on your cardio. I mean, they say it's the, right. like, like pro skiers have the, the biggest cardio of any athlete in the world. Um, right. And I believe it, it is like just huge on your cardio. Cause my cardio was huge from that, but I had like no impact resistance uh, coming out of that. Right. Skiing is very low impact. So I got done with that in February. Um, and it was like mud season for three weeks. So it was like late March when I really got on the trails again. Um, and I could only do like 3,000 feet of elevation when I started March. <laughs> that was like all my legs could handle in a day. Um, and so I... Uh, I, uh, I worked up to 10,000 feet of elevation a day. Um, so that, that's like 70 laps on that little hill. Wow. And, so you, you, and, when you were doing 20 to 25 miles or like kind of in that, how, how many weeks did you do that? And was that all just on the Highland Hill? Yeah, almost everything was on was at Highland. Um, I mean, I, maybe only for a couple times did I go anywhere else. Um, it just... It, it was, it's right next to my house, like where I just walked yeah. out my door. Um, and so and I have two kids to take care of. And, um, and so it was just having, a, you know, I'd get them off to, I'd eat, I'd, I'd get up, get my kids off to school, eat breakfast with them, and then um, head out to do training. And then often I had like stuff to do during the day. So sometimes I'd train in the middle of the night as well. Um, but yeah, it's like almost every day was at Highland on doing laps on that hill. And that made me really mentally tough because 70 laps on the same boring hill is, is, it's boring as hell is all I can say. Well, that, um, yeah, no kidding. That's crazy. I mean, and so did you do, you would, you would break it up into like two a days then and do like 10 miles and then 10 miles at night? Or, or did you like buy kids, go to school, and then basically you'd have to walk like the whole day to get that mileage, right? Yeah, yeah, but I struggled to get done by the time they got out of school. So sometimes right. I'd get like two thirds of it done or three quarters of it done. And okay. Then, and then have to uh, um, turn around, you know, and then I'd get home when they got home and then um, have dinner and then, um, and then, you know, whatever. And then I'd end up going back out at 10 o'clock at night or something to, to finish. So. Uh, it just it just was what it was, <laughs> but it, honestly, I like it. It, it, it was extreme, and I and I kind of laugh. I I think I, I haven't verified this. I think I'm the first non-Colorado to set a 14 er record, um, and so um, it was like it was like extra misery 
to do that, but it really made me super mentally tough. Like, it made the real thing a lot easier because the real thing is way more interesting and way more fun um, to climb a real mountain. And also, we have, like, you're from the Midwest. It's either freezing cold, raining, or hot and humid here, so the weather was atrocious all the time. Um, and, and that really helped, too, because in the mountains, the weather's kind of hard, but it really did not phase me to get rained on or for it to be miserable uh, in the mountains either. Oh yeah, no. Colorado is like a dream. I mean, if any anywhere is better than Minnesota weather for the most part. So yeah. I mean, you're definitely like for sure rugged enough. And I I just I, that is amazing though. I, I would have think, I mean, I, that you tr- you overtrained almost to some degree. I, I'm not not saying like metabolically or whatever, but just like you 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 were you were more than ready. I guess the way I would say that. But hearing that where because I, I mean that's crazy to just be living life but squeezing in what would be what six or seven hours worth of training per day you know that's crazy that is crazy yeah, that's it, that's amazing it ended, it ended up, yeah i mean it ended up being a little more than that. it was like eight to nine hours jeez <laughs> uh, it, just, it just kind of worked out um yeah but, uh, yeah it was uh it, it was a lot and then if the weather was just too bad like I would I would go to the gym, you know, and I'd do three to five hundred flights of stairs on a stair climber, which is probably worse than doing seventy laps on the same hill every day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think I hated the gym the most uh, <laughs> in training, and and uh, but you know Highland, it was all right. You know, there's a lot of wildlife and and all of that, and you learn to. I would say one of the other lessons I learned is you learn to really appreciate the little things like. You know, just seeing a turkey could just make, you just like, you learn how to hang on to the smallest things. Like, oh, that's really cool, and that's going to make me happy for three hours. Um, and so that was that was definitely something I learned in training as well. Dude, I'm looking at pictures of your Instagram and your van too. I have a, I don't know if you have looked through a few on mine. I'm, I'm about the worst Instagram social media person there is. So I, I get like, you know, one or two likes, but I do have a couple pictures of our, we have a T1N. Actually, we just hit a deer. And so it's in the shop in Billings, Montana. It's, it's kind of a nightmare situation, but you know, it's a, it's the, it's like a part of your, well, the way I say it this way, I'll say it this way. The, uh, when you hit a deer with a car, like your daily driver, it's the hassle is kind of like having a tree fall in your front yard, and you're like, ah, crap, now I got to deal with this. And when you, if a, yeah. if you if you hit a deer with your van, like we did, I, I was like, I feel like a tree just fell on our house, you know? Like, there's yeah. more hassle, and you've lost the place you're gonna sleep, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, talk. Yeah, no. Yeah, talk about uh, how long have you had your van? Um, what is the van like? Uh, is it? Uh, do you have any other further adventures planned with it? Are you gonna sell it? Is this like upgrade? Where where are you at with it? This thing looks amazing. Yeah, so the van's name is Beast. Um, I got it uh, two years ago for the for this uh, event. Um, okay. But it. Uh, but it. You know, it's, it's definitely awesome beyond that. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I, I, I hope I can keep it. Um, I, I get a lot invested in it, but I'm hoping we can keep it. Uh, we're going to take a family trip in it here uh, in a couple weeks as well and kind of tour the West uh, in it with everybody. Um, and, um, but yeah, Beast is, uh, so I bought it. It was just a passenger van, but it had been converted to full-wheel drive when I bought it. Okay. Um, but it, it was like everything I, I looked for quite a while, um, and I, I wanted the the regular body, not the extended body, um, for better off road. 
but it's got so Beast is front and rear axle lockers. Uh, it's got a second gas tank, a built-in air compressor. It's like a rock crawler, but it's, you know, massive band. Jeez. Uh, and then I built um, after I got it. Then I built. Um, I had um, the Colorado camper van put the top on it, so that top actually goes up four feet, and there's a second bed up there. I didn't need that for the for the record but um that's awesome for you know having a family or whatever um so you can sleep you've basically got two queen beds in there then basically or two yeah yeah Yeah, well there's a queen there's a queen up top and then uh it's a queen length but like uh once the next side down a full yeah uh a full in the in the bottom um as well Uh, there's a kitchen and um yeah, microwave and, and all that in it. So I, I built all that out um, with with the record in mind. Right. Um, I did it my I did it myself because I looked at like someone else building it. They all built like really pretty, nice stuff, but it's not as utilitarian as I needed it. Um, and then um, added solar this year to power the freezers and uh, a water system um, as well. So that was, <laughs> I took it out in training. It was like. I had not anticipated just like filling up your water every day was a ton of work because I was going through like three to four gallons of water a day total. Um, And and so I I built a water system into it with a pump and everything um, as well. um, And I held 30 gallons of water um, on the race. Um, So, yeah. What do you get? This is wild. What do you get for gas mileage with that car if you're just. you know, driving down the interstate. Uh, it actually gets like 15. Okay, um, that's pretty good. Bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed. So it's got the smaller V8 in it, which probably okay. helps. It's a little, it's a little slower, but it, it actually gets like 15 pretty consistently. Yeah, um, that's that's nice. That's good enough for I, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's not that, like I said, one of the cool things about it is it has a second gas tank that holds almost, I don't know, it's 20. 20 some extra gallons in it um, which was huge for the race um, to, like I only had to fill up I think twice in the middle of the race um, for the whole thing and there was 1700 miles of driving um, so um, and a lot of that was you know off road off road slow you know getting probably a few miles to the gallon going on some of those off road roads so actually the, the scariest time of the whole thing it wasn't on a mountain it was I I drove it up Lake Como Road uh, which is the road up to Little Bear and Blanca yep yep uh, which which is considered to be the hardest roughest oil drive road in Colorado wait you got um, did you get up to the lake no 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 okay I mean, and, and that, that would have been too high anyways yeah but I got up to Jaws, to Jaws 1 okay but I, I doubt many other people have been to Jaws 1 with a 10,000 pound van <laughs> yeah <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, coming down, it was one of those, like I said, it was one of the hardest days, so I was so sick. Um, I think it was between 11.30 and midnight when I was coming down the road. Um, and there's one spot, it's like the steepest spot on the road, and there's this huge boulder that's like rolled into the road. Um, and the Jeep guys can get around it, because their, their vehicles are narrower. Um, this thing's like over eight feet wide, it's... It's like a, over a foot wider than most of the Jeeps. And and I was trying to squeeze around this rock. I mean, I'd gotten up and gotten past it. Um, but I was trying to squeeze around this rock, and it had been raining, like, every day for a week. And, you know, I'm just down to, like, inches. And there's, like, a 500-foot drop off the side right at this point. And 
side wheel was right on the edge, which was all fine, except the edge started giving away. Um, so I had my head out the window, and I looked down, and I see the whole edge of the road just crumbling. Yeah. And the front, cor- front corner of the van started going down, and the back corner started going up. And, you know, that was, just, that was probably the scariest moment, because it was only, like, when you're hiking, you're, like, kind of in control of your domain. When you're inside a vehicle, it was not good. Jeez. Uh, so I ended up just gunning it, turning the wheel to the right and gunning it, and, and got out of it. But, I mean, it was I was, like, pinched between the boulder and the edge, you know? And so there was only so much I could do, um, but thankfully I didn't go over the edge. <laughs> but there was... That, that was the worst moment. And I read an article that said more as many people has died on that road as have died on Little Bear. Jeez. <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, eh, I'm going to die. So this, that, was, that was for sure the most scary moment when when I when the van started going over the edge. That, 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 was, that was bad. Wow. So. Oh my God. Well, I, hey, this has been like a super fun conversation and – I want to ask you how much your van's worth, but I, but it's, uh, you know, probably way out of my price range with all of the customization you've had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, the prices have gone down recently. I think it's about fifty grand right now. Yeah. Um, well, you should ask if you if you ever have to sell it, then ask for like ninety because there's probably people in Colorado that would pay pay for it. You know, it's, even with mine, I'm like, honey, maybe maybe we should like sell our van. You know, because like it's, it's so desired, and then people can't find yeah. them really anywhere. But oh yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Well, you know, I didn't really ask what what is your why. You know, I mean, I know the motivation here to yeah. come something, but like, is there something even more foundational and, and as a Christian too that like when it comes to being in the outdoors, hiking. Or just doing something tough in general, like um, you know, what what would you say your why is? Oh, I also I didn't ask you this. What what are you off to next? Like, what's next for you? Yeah, um, on the why question, um, I mean, I think it's not as like I really want something like really awesome, you know. Um, I did actually. So this is kind of sad I intended to fundraise for charity for this thing and the charity I partnered with like did not do their half of it and it was really a kind of a heartbreak for me because I did I, I, when I did in 2013 I fundraised for an organization and then I I had like offered to, like 10 hours a week work on fundraising with the, you know with these guys and they never like stepped up to the plate on, on their half of it um, to, to enable that to happen essentially <laughs> That was that was that was going to be a big part of my why, and so I really did actually struggle this year. Because um, for me, that's really important to like whatever I'm doing. I want to be doing good for other people, um, and that's a big part of my life and like a big motivation in my life. And then when that really wasn't working out, I didn't have time. I wasn't on my training like the high end of my training. I didn't really have time to find another organization and like restart the whole fundraising side of it so that that would have been my why uh in a big way but it didn't work out um so i did just have to find like internal this is what i want to do with my life and i know that and, and therefore i'm just going to do it um and so that's that's how it was uh, what was the second question you had well what's next for you oh what's next um yeah man that's a huge struggle when you when you finish something like this yeah <laughs> it's like this has like been my everything for two years, you know, and then it was done, and they were like, "Dang, it's over with." Now what? Uh, this is all I can see, you know, for two years. 
Um, I did actually so last night. I, anyways, I was looking looking for my next thing, and I think I'm gonna. I don't know if this is possible yet, but I think it is. I think I'm gonna try to set ten FKTs in ten days this fall. Um, smaller ones, um, and in the Midwest. But um, I think that's gonna be my my cool thing for this fall. Okay. Um, and so I gotta uh, I gotta. Um, there's a bunch of like trail segments and stuff up here that all have FKTs, so I'm gonna try to set ten FKTs in ten days, um, and just like sleep in my car and and just zing between them and, and go all out. Um, and so, also, uh, my wife wants me to run a marathon with her because we met running, um, but we've never run a race together. <laughs> okay. And I've done I've done five, and she's probably done like fifteen marathons. Um, and so we're gonna do a marathon together this year. Hey, you've been listening to the Cedar Skier Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Big shout out to Dan. Uh, we really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you for sharing so much about your uh, journey, not just on these 14ers, but in life as well. Just an incredible man, incredible story. Uh, we're really thankful that we could share it with our listeners. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it. If you go check out some of our other shows and other content, comment. Feel free to let us know what you think. And if you have an idea or a tip for another guest or show or concept, shoot us an email at cedarskier at gmail.com. We've got another show coming. There's been a lot happening in the Nordic ski world, so we got to catch up. And hopefully we're going to get on Shovel Lake Public Radio here in a couple of days and keep you up to speed. But we hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, happy to have you with us. As I always like to say, keep on striving, keep on skiing. Oh.